0: My name is Russell, I'm the teaching pastor here at Church of the City, and in light of this moment where we have been brought together as a community of people sharing the same air, the warm air that we're sharing this morning, we, we are going to, to take a moment to, to slow. And uh, It feels as though uh, this is thematic for this morning, but it's unintentional, um, through Sarah's thought around communion, through this last song of God being in the midst of, of waiting. Um, there's something really powerful about us as humans when, when we can put the brakes on life, even for a moment, just just to catch a beat. And so this morning, um, on purpose, we're going to do that. Uh, we are going to, to find some slowness. We're going to find some air. We're going to find some time. Um, in light of our children upstairs, it won't be perfectly quiet, um, but we will, we will do our best. Uh, we, we live in a city. Things are always... Um, around us, and there's always motion and noise, and yet in the middle of that, we can slow long enough to breathe, to center ourselves around Jesus of Nazareth, um, to reorient life uh, to, to his love with us, for us, um, on our behalf. So we're going to take a moment of silence. Uh, it's going to be a full 60 seconds, um, and, and it'll feel long. Uh, my wife went and watched the Mr. Rogers movie, um, I don't know if you've heard about this. Um, I haven't seen it yet. Um, she hasn't stopped talking about it for three days. Um, and apparently there's a scene where Mr. Rogers is on TV when he, they, they focus on a clock. And on the clock, he says, we're going to watch a clock for 60 seconds. And then there's no talking. And people are like, well, TV doesn't work that way. It's got to be fast motion all the time. And, and Mr. Rogers, Fred Rogers, uh, had a camera looking at a clock for a full minute. So if he can do it, we certainly can too. So just do this for me. Take a breath. Center yourself if you want to pray. If you just want to slow your mind, we'll pray at the end of this this minute. But let's just take take a beat. God, to, to listen in to the other part of our community uh, that isn't in this room, it reminds me that, that you are constantly listening to our lives, our stories, to what, what we're doing. And a lot of the time, uh, you just let us be. You let us just be human and live our life and do what we're doing. But you're ever-present. You're with us. You're for us. And you understand us better than we, we understand ourselves. So God, as we as we take these moments, uh, this full hour that we're together, gathered as a church community, God, we we are looking for you. We're looking for for something, something that we need. I don't necessarily have words for what each person in this room is looking for, other than you, God. We are looking for you, and we want to be found by you in the very same breath. God, we're looking for intimacy. We're looking for depth. We're looking for, for you to continue to do what you're so good at, and that's changing and transforming our lives, our experiences, who we are, into people that look more like what you had in mind originally. So God, through, through the power of your spirit, through the power of your words, the power of this church community, and God, certainly just by your presence, we, we are here anticipating your goodness to find us. We love you, Jesus, and pray in your name. Amen. Well, like I said, my name is Russell, um, teaching pastor here, and we, we as, a, as a church are uh, at one of those transition points when it comes to what we, we focus on uh, on a Sunday morning around the scriptures. We, we are a church fully committed to the personhood of Jesus, uh, the reality of God putting flesh and bones on coming into our world <clears throat> and living among us. And our our access point for that um, is is something that you're probably very familiar with. We call it the Bible or the scriptures. And we are are committed to the storyline of the scriptures. We're committed to being followers of the God who created us and gave us an understanding of what we're like, what the world is like, what he's like through these very um, intense and detailed accounts of people just like you and I trying to figure out what God is up to. Uh, as a working definition that we've been using here at Church of the City, to describe what the Bible is or, or what scriptures are, um, our, our basic um, understanding of it is that it is the intersection between God's activity and the human story, okay? It's, it's the intersection between what God is doing and what humans are doing at the same time. Now, if you want to go back and listen to um, some more material on that, we just taught on this about a month ago in our questionable series, our very first questionable um, series from this go round. So you can go back on our podcast, listen to that if you want to, to get more grip on where we are with the scriptures and why we are so committed to, to trying to understand them and try to get from them some understanding of what God is up to in their story and therefore in, in our story. But we're going to change a bit this morning from where we've been. We've, we've spent a lot of time. We're a fairly young church. Um, we spent a lot of time in the second half of the Bible, uh, a, a whole group of um, letters and writings that we call the New Testament, and we're going to move um, to the first half. And it's not really equal to call them halves. Um, Something over two-thirds of our Bibles are in what we call the Old Testament. Um, And originally, the Old Testament uh, was the, the scriptures, the writings of the Hebrew people, the Israelites. And so in the days of Jesus, when he's walking and talking and using the scriptures, and he uses that phrase, he's not referring to our scriptures of the New Testament. He's referring to our scriptures that we call the Old Testament. They were, that was the Bible of his people in his day. And so as that storyline was developing, um, people felt like these were really important things to be writing down, that God is up to something, and we have to document it. Now, that was a challenge because um, there wasn't a lot of access to writing. Only the most educated people would be writing. So a lot of the accounts from the Old Testament and the New Testament um, in a different way originally were, were told in story form. They were, they were told from one person to another, um, to make sure that these stories didn't disappear, that people knew what was going on. So we're going we're gonna to rewind the tape. So if you want to just mentally get a picture um, of Jesus like, on a timeline, um, you can, if that's helpful for you. But we're going we're gonna to go about 500 years prior to Jesus. And we're going we're gonna to land in a section of the Old Testament. Um, when the story was developing in a way that, that I think a lot of us look at, if, especially if you grew up around the church, we kind of look at it like fairy tales, like kings and queens, and you know, big kingdoms, and people doing things like murdering one another to get power, and I mean, all these like crazy king kind of things. Um, but as as we land and put a foot into the story of Scripture, let me frame this for you. We're, we're coming. I won't go clear back to the beginning. We're coming to a time in the history of these people, the Hebrews or the Israelites, when when they had had a pretty rough go at being uh, human. If you remember, they had been told you were God's people. They had been given a promise through one of their forefathers, a guy named Abraham. And they kept on this, like, attachment to God. Like, they they, they were God's people. They had this privilege and this position, and they they lived that way. The problem is it, it grew from this very privileged and humble position to a very privileged and prideful position. So the the, the people of God, all of a sudden— began believing that they were way better than they actually were. And so because of it, they just made massive mistakes over and over and over again. I mean, originally even the mistake of having a king, like God had set it up where he was their king. It's called a theocracy where your God is in charge. And they said, we don't want that. We want a human to look at because that's easier for us. All the other people around us in their nation states, they've got kings. So we want one of those. And, and God says, all right, I'll, I'll, I'll give you that. It's not my best, but I'll, I'll give that to you. And it doesn't go very well. If you remember, the storyline of Israel and the kings is just a mess. It's king after king after king who just makes it worse. To the, to the extent that the kingdom gets broken up, it has, they're warring with each other. It's just a mess. And then finally, God is like, I need to let you know how bad things are. And so he starts sending prophets, these preachers, into his people and saying, all right, you guys have made a mess out of being human, and, and I don't want that for you. So change. Don't do what you're doing right now. And it just never really seemed to work. Like The, the people of God just never really got a grip on being human. And so subsequently, God had, had allowed and had sent, it even says in Scripture, other stronger nations to come and and capture Israel. We call them the captivities. Um, the first captivity is this this captivity, the one I want to focus on, um, is this group called the Babylonians? You have probably heard of them before. Present-day Iraq was kind of their uh, their headquarters, and they come and they they sweep into uh, the southern kingdom called Judah and uh, the the capital Jerusalem. And in this expedition into um, Israel, um, something around a million people die um, in this in this original onslaught of of Judah. And then most scholars believe another like 1.2 to 1.5 million people die on the march back to the capital of Babylon. These people were aggressive captors, and their one goal was to create the largest empire on earth. They were brutal. Um, if you were sickly on this journey back to, to Babylon, um, or disobedient, or just couldn't keep up, um, they would have you dig a hole in the sand. And then they'd have you get in the hole and have your friends or family bury you up to your neck in the sand and leave you there. They didn't, they didn't want anyone to believe that they were merciful, that they were kind, that they were benevolent, They were cruel, and they had captured nation states before, and they understood they had to make sure that everybody knew who was in charge. But Over time, the Babylonians, while Israel's in captivity, they get um, captured themselves. They go to war with another group called the Persians, and the Persians take over Babylon. Um, And we're going to land at that part of the story um, here in just a second. But just understand, if the Babylonians were horrible, to defeat a horrible kingdom empire is going to take an even more horribler, I don't know what that word is, a worse kingdom. Like, it's going to take people who are stronger and more brutal and, and more willing to, to spill blood. So Israel's been, or Judah at this point, Israel's been sitting here trying to like figure out what God's up to. What's going on in the middle of this story? And here's, here's the first thing I want to, us like to weigh out here. I, I need you, I absolutely need you to divorce these stories of the Old Testament from fairy tales. They just aren't fairy tales. There is no flannel graph behind me. There is no, uh, what are the, the vegetables that talk? Veggie tales. This isn't veggie tales. I mean, that's great. My kids love veggie tales. It gives them access to the stories, but, but that's not this story. This story is real humans like you and I facing atrocious circumstances. I mean, just imagine... This happening in modern times, in the modern world. A nation taking over another nation. You know what that produces in our, in our world? World wars. Strong dictators are, are facing people who think that's not the right way. When blood is being shed, people will try to step in and stop. And certainly that happened in this day, in age two, but no one could stop these powers. So we're going to focus in on a book called Esther. If you have a Bible, go ahead and open to it. If you have your phone, you can flip to it. We'll get to it in just a second. But here's my running theme for this. It's worse than you think. It's just, it is. The story of Esther is a beautiful, amazing, powerful account of of godly human beings interacting with the world around them. But the only reason a story like this is ever written is because it's worse than you think it is. Because the story is so messy. And this is our first point of contact, that I want to I build this thread through the whole of this story. You need to hear up front that we as a church community, um, and, and if you've been along with us, you understand this to be true, but if you're just catching up with us, try to figure out if this is a church home for you, this is where you want to spend some time in this community is we're just brutally honest about the way things are. And the brutal, honest truth of it is, what's true in Esther is true today. Our world is worse than you think it is. Your story is messier than you think it is. You are more broken than you think you are. And that just has to be out there, because we're not looking back in time and saying, man, we've evolved so far in the last 2,500 years. The reason the story has any relevance at all is because we're just like them. We have vast amounts of pain and hurt in our story. So what we have in this account is something that I think makes perfect sense for us to lean into. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and open it. We are in Esther. We're going to start right at the beginning because that seems really natural. Let's start at the beginning of the story. And it starts this way. This is what happened during the time of Xerxes. The Xerxes who ruled over 127 provinces stretching from India to Kush. Now, if you can put this in your mind, do you know where India is on a global map? Yeah, you, can, you can see it in your mind, a whole continent south of Asia, kind of its own subcontinent, all the way to Kush, which is Egypt, upper Nile of Egypt. This is a massive empire. This is the single largest empire on earth ever at this point. 127 provinces, which most scholars believe that means they would conquered 126 other nation states and made each one a province. This is a massive empire accumulation of wealth, resources, and power. At the time, at that time, King Xerxes reigned from his royal throne in the, city, in the citadel of Susa, and this is in uh, present-day Iraq, uh, excuse me, present-day Iran. And in the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all of his nobles and officials. The military leaders of Persia and Media, the princes and the nobles and the provi- of the provinces were present. For a full 180 days, he displayed the vast wealth of his kingdom and the splendor and glory of his majesty. Picture that for a second. I mean, this is like the epitome of egocentric display, right? The king is the king is the king is the king for 180 days, and he's going to demonstrate to everyone by inviting just the upper crust of society to a massive party, and everyone gets to watch as the king celebrates himself. When these days were over, the king gave a banquet because you need a banquet after you have a massive 180-day celebration of yourself. When these days were over, the king gave a banquet lasting seven days in the enclosed garden of the king's palace for all the people from the least to the greatest who were in the citadel of Susa. The garden had hangings of white and blue linen fastened with cords of white linen and purple materials and silver rings on marble pillars There were couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and other costly stones. Wine was served in goblets of gold, each one different from the other, and the royal wine was abundant in keeping with the king's liberality. By the king's command, each guest was allowed to drink without restriction, for the king instructed all the wine stewards to serve each man what he wished. Now, Queen Vashti also gave a banquet for the women in the royal palace of King Xerxes, On the seventh day, when King King Xerxes was in high spirits from wine, he commanded the seven eunuchs who served him. Now, this is the part of the Old Testament we're just going to struggle, okay? I'm going to admit that right now. I've studied um, Scripture for a long time. I've studied um, Hebrew and Greek, and these names are still super challenging. So be gracious with me, okay? Mehumen, Biztha, Harbona, Bigtha, Abagtha, Zether, and Carcass to bring before him Queen Vashti wearing her royal crown in order to display her beauty to the people and nobles where she was lovely to look at. But when the attendants delivered the king's command, Queen Vashti refused to come. Then the king became furious and burned with anger. Now, pause here for a second. Let's let's catch up together to kind of get a sense of what's going on. Here's the thing about the Old Testament as well. There's bigger chunks for us to get through, so let's just slow down for a minute and try to understand what's happening. The king throws a massive celebration of who he is. 180-day-long celebration. Um, and when you're the king of an empire of this scale, maybe in, in earthly terms, you deserve it, right? Like you've you've done something. You've conquered the world, basically, at this point. And so with this massive display of his wealth and his power for everybody. He brings the best of the best alongside of him so they can kind of get a sense of it. They get to celebrate. The very end of it, seven days of celebration just for the citadel of Susa. Now, this citadel is this um, very strong city that had been most scholars believe it habitated for about 2,000 years at this point, um, and had been the center of the Persian Empire. He throws a seven-day celebration for everybody, from the wealthiest to the poorest, um, in in the citadel, and they're split into two groups. You've got the guys hanging out outside um, in the vast gardens, and you've got the women inside, and the two um, royalty leaders are the ones throwing these parties, right? The king is outside with the men, and the queen is inside with the women. Everything seems pretty... um, pretty normal. Like this is how stories are. They, uh, kings and queens do this kind of stuff, it seems like, often. We're not really alarmed by it. Now, the king had been giving away um, as much wine as he, as, as he could muster. Like they, no one can say that, I, I don't want any more, or that uh, um, if they did want more, no one could tell them you couldn't have any more. And so, people are getting, are getting loaded. I mean, that's what's going on here. This is, this is a massive, massive party, I mean, it's, it's completely lit, the whole thing, including the king. And the king, at one point, decides that because of the situation, it would be a good idea to summon his queen to come out to the men wearing nothing but her crown. That's what he, that's what he decided. I mean, it's, it's an obscure way of saying it here in the text. He asked her to come wearing her crown. Scholars, originally, Hebrew scholars look at this and say, like, that's what's going on, her crown and only it. To come out in front of the men, to display her, her beauty to all these guys who are drunk and loaded. This, this is the situation. This is what's going on in this story. This is, this is the backdrop and the setting of what's happening in the book and story of Esther. And the striking thing about it is Queen Vashti says no. She says it won't do it. And the king is furious. This is the king who just threw a 180-day celebration for himself. The king who has seven days of no-limit drinking in his palace for everyone in the city. Has just been told no publicly by his queen. And he's furious. It maddens him. Now this this storyline, this piece of the picture, this is the premise that the whole story of Esther is built on this discrepancy of power between two human beings and what two human beings will do to one another, for one another, or against one another. Let's pick up your text again as we press on. Verse 13. Since it was customary for the king to consult experts in the matters of law and justice, he spoke with the wise men who understood the times and were closest to the king. Kershenna, Shethar, Admetha, Tarshish, Merez, Mersena, and Memucan, the seven nobles of Persia and Media, who had special access to the king and were highest in the kingdom. Now, just put your finger there for a second. Do you understand what he's doing? He's furious, and so he reaches out to his lawyers and asks them, what can I do? I need counsel. This can't stand. Now, these, these individual leaders, they, they are the experts on everything going on in the kingdom. These are the ones who understand the political climate. They understand the power differentials. They understand what people will listen to king and which ones will rebel against the king. And it goes to them to ask for advice. Now, just think about this for a second. We, we live in a very um, specific political moment in our country's history. Undeniable, right? Every moment is. It's different than the last um, I was born in 1982. If you do the math, that means I'll be 36 this year. Um, but in 1982, I couldn't tell you the political climate, and I was alive that year in the U.S. So as we read back in the stories of Scripture, uh, we have to give some just some understanding in our minds that there's a very rich and complicated social and political story happening inside these texts. are not just flat. Again, it's not just a fairy tale. A king sits on a throne and does this thing that we all expect him to do or something like that. It's very complicated. And as being very complicated, he goes to the men who understood how complicated it was. And this is what he says. According to the law, what must be done to Queen Vashti? She's not obeyed the command of King Xerxes the eunuchs have taken to her. Then Memucan replied in the presence of the king and the nobles, Queen Vashti has done wrong, not only against the king, but also against all the nobles and the peoples of all the provinces of King Xerxes. So he elevates it. It isn't that she disobeyed you, King Xerxes. She violated all of us by refusing you. For the queen's conduct will become known to all the women. And so they will despise their husbands and say, King Xerxes commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, but she would not come. This very day, the Persian and Median women of the nobility who have heard about the queen's conduct will respond to the king's nobles in the same way. There will be no end of the disrespect and the discord. Do you hear what they're saying? If word gets out about what Queen Vashti has done, all the women in the kingdom, especially the upper crust women, they'll do the same thing. They will defy their husbands. They will tell him no. There will be no end to the discord in our kingdom if we don't do something about this right now. This is a very complicated political situation, social situation, cultural situation. But even as such, I think we can see this is, this is a huge problem. It's a huge problem for the power that King Xerxes exerts over his kingdom. But just, just think for a moment about the human lives he's talking about. This, this, this counselor, Memucan, is saying if, if the queen of Persia won't listen to her husband, then that's going to get out and all the women of our kingdom are going to become empowered to not listen to their husbands. And that's a problem. They're afraid. They're scared. They've got power, and they can see the potential of losing that power. Verse 19. Therefore, if it pleases the king, let him issue a royal decree, and let it be written in the laws of Persia and Media, which cannot be repealed, that Vashti is never again to enter the presence of King Xerxes. Also, let the king give her royal position to someone else who is better than she, then when the king's edict is proclaimed throughout all his vast realm, all the women will respect their husbands from the least to the greatest. The king and his nobles were pleased with this advice, so the king did as Memican proposed. He sent dispatches to all parts of the kingdom, to each province in its own script, and to each people in their own language, proclaiming that every man should be ruler over his own household using his native King Xerxes listens to the advice of his counselors and he decides to punish his queen, his wife. It, it was brought up this week, um, Sarah was talking about this as we were digging through this passage, and she asked a, a really important question. Why didn't King Xerxes just just kill her? He has the power, no, no doubt, right? He has the ability to... to have anyone murdered. We'll see that in the rest of the story. A lot of people get murdered in this story at the king's word. Why didn't he just kill her? I mean, it would have been effective, right? In one way, like, you defy the king, you get murdered, everyone's like, I'm not going to defy the king anymore. And yet, he decides to go a different route. This wise counselor who understands the social, cultural, and political climate of his day realizes something that might be lost on us. Death might have been too easy. It might have been too good for what they saw this offense being. And it might not have given them the control and power they were hoping for by decreeing and demonstrating, using Queen Vashti as an example, that if you defy your husband in this kingdom, in this patriarchal, male-centered society, then you will be cut off. You will be excommunicated. You will be stripped of all of your position, all of your power, all of your prowess. Your womanhood will disappear. Your personhood will be compromised. Your value and worth will be marginalized and dismissed. You will have nothing left and you'll have to watch it happen. See, what they come up with is a twisted, sick display of exerting power over the human, over another human. More power than, than death would have had. And in the end, if you murder someone who kind of goes against the grain, there are always be people who look at that and say, well, they were a martyr for that cause, and I'm still going to be attached to that cause. This has terrifying implications to the kingdom, and the king knows it. And so he sends out riders, maybe ravens, I don't know. Sends out riders through the kingdom and, and to deliver this message. To every person in their own tongue, among their own people, that every woman in the kingdom ought to listen and obey her husband. Now, let me just say something here, as this dust kind of settles of the story. What we see in the story of Scripture is not baptized and blessed ways of being human. We have to differentiate these stories in Scripture from God instructing this is how it should be. We do that all the time. Like we read a story and we look at it and it's like, that's that's clearly not inside of what we would say God's best is. It competes with what we see um, God doing in other places and what he said and how he acted. And we have to differentiate these. But here's something that's become pretty tragic in our culture, especially as cultural Christians in our nation, is we have a hard time pulling apart the pieces of what's culturally bound in a story. What I mean by that is, what was the story of those people? separating that from what is God's best or what is he doing in the midst of that culturally bound place. Let me say it really clearly. I think it is absolutely atrocious and wrong, arrogant and prideful for us to look back in the story of Scripture and find something we like, like men being at the center of culture and women having no place and saying, well, clearly it's in the Bible, that's what God wants. Well, yeah, there's a lot of things in the Bible that God doesn't want. This is one of those things that's on display in front of us and that has been used. Well, God didn't destroy this king. He didn't destroy the Persian kingdom when he did this. Clearly, God must be up to something. It's a patriarchal, male-centric society is God's best for humanity. People have argued. It just isn't true. In fact, what we see here is a story where, again, things are worse than they look. I put a list together, and I'm going to put it on the screen behind me here. And I just want you to look at this list of the display of all the things. I, I've just come up with like, with our team on what's broken in this story. Go into that list, Chris. First of all, what we see is a massive amount of, of pride, uh, hubris, the arrogance of this king, believing that he's the center of the world. He's conquered the world, and it's just on display. And, and the reality is that runs completely against the grain of what we see even in the early story of Scripture. We see God taking the humble person, taking the person who loves the other person alongside of them well and and elevating them, not the person who's domineering and in control and willing to murder other people. But so this king sets up this massive festival for himself. He worships his own wealth. He extends vast amounts of of drunkenness. He tells his wife to come in as a sex object into this court with all these men. It's clearly not God's best. This is not by design the way it's supposed to go. The fabric of marriage is being attacked when this marriage is so dysfunctional and broken, and it's on display in front of everybody. The king tells his queen to come in completely naked to see his drunk friends. And then when she doesn't, he punishes her, stripping her of all her humanity, and says, get away from me. Marriage has been has just been tattered. There's a vast amount of power being abused in this story. The king is just out of control, and the people around him validate his abuse of power. The the, the counselors come alongside, well, how do we make this legal? How do we do this better for you? How do we win the day and keep your power in control? We see gender-based discrimination. There's establishing, protecting of power structures, and there's this very powerful tool of fear being used to control other humans. And this is one chapter of one of the stories in our scriptures. Here's what I want you to feel in this moment. This is messed up. This is broken. This isn't the way it's supposed to be. And at the center of it, I think the biggest display of this brokenness is the way that this king, representing the men in his kingdom, Violates his queen representing the women in his kingdom. If you go back in our storyline of scripture to the origin story in Genesis, and you go back to the original creation event, what you see is you see God creating. And out of his imagination, he creates everything that we see, everything we experience, the way we interact with the world, the physics holding us together. He created all that out of his imagination. And then when it came to the most important creation he would ever, ever do, he looked to his own image and patterned humanity after himself. And here's where we get it wrong. A lot of us have been told, well, he created one person in his image and then created another person in the image of that person. He created men and then women were created in the image of men. That's not what the storyline of Scripture says. If you want to go back and read on this, we, we actually addressed this a few weeks ago in our, uh, in our uh, questionable series. It says in Genesis that he created them, male and female he created them, in his image. You see, God is an equal opportunity creator. He created men and women fully in his image. Possessing these these characteristics, these, these attributes of himself to be seen and put on display in people. Tragedy is, the fall is far more thorough than we've ever given it credit for, at making a mess out of our human story. But what comes immediately out of the fall, in the curse, is now the enmity between men and women, is now the power differential, is now the struggle between a man and a woman, or before they're creating this image to cooperate and work together, and now that's been broken. The story of Esther is just on display, you guys, at how twisted the relationship between men and women has gotten, how power-hungry one half of our genders have gotten, how out of control with maintaining power men have gotten, and then somehow trying to baptize this whole patriarchal society as God's best for humans. You see, the reality is here in this text, what we see is that things are way worse than they look on the surface. We've gotten very good um, as American Christians at pretending the world's a good place, better than it actually is. And I would argue the world is good. There is a lot of good in this world, and the source of good in this world is God Himself. And that good is constantly penetrating into the darkness and making something that is tragic and broken better than it would be on its own. But we have to admit something. Our world is, is a mess. Our world is broken. That we as human beings, we, we just get it in our brains, I think, at times, that it's not that bad. But guys, it is that bad. Things are messy and dirty and broken and sinful and dark. The first century audience in the days of Jesus, they were looking for somebody, for something to change, not because everything was so hunky-dory, but because they understood how bad it had been and how bad it was. We can't live in self-delusion. Our world is messier than we think it is. Our world's a darker place than we want it to be. You are more broken and more sinful than you think you are. That's the starting place for Esther. But let me tell you something. It's not supposed to be that way. It's not supposed to be this broken. It's not supposed to be this messy. It's not supposed to be this bad, this sinful. See, these stories, if if we dig into them, they could send us all into spirals of depression just because they are that messy. And we start relating the the same kinds of things in our life and looking around our world, our culture, the the happenings around us, and it can be a, a, a pretty depressing outlook on life. We start seeing People in power separating families at borders. You start seeing people on display showing that humanity is a mess. You start seeing people sitting on sidewalks asking for handouts and you're conflicted and have no idea what to do about it. You start seeing people dealing in open form with their mental health issues or their drug and substance abuse issues. And we don't know what to do about it. We start seeing people in our families and in our lives make massive mistakes, hurting people around them. And we have no idea what to do. And if we just live there and just say, man, it's a really crappy world we live in. It's just a horrible outlook. It's just depressing. But it's not supposed to be that way. That story, our story, this messy story, was never God's intention. And the crazy thing about it, what we see in the whole of Scripture, if you put everything together in the whole Bible and what's going on here, is we see a God who's relentless at trying to fix the problems that we've created. A God who over and over and over again, from the very beginning, from the creation itself, he has one agenda in mind. Relationship. With you, relationship with people, relationship with me. He creates for that reason. He sets people uh, away from the, from the Garden of Eden for that reason. He pursues them after they've fallen through the curse for that reason. But most importantly, he shows up on earth himself for that reason. Now remember, this is 500 years before anything of the New Testament including the arrival of Jesus. But I want to read a passage out of Philippians for you. It, it, Philippians is this letter written from a pastor to a church in a place called Philippi. And, he, and, and this, this pastor writes about Jesus. And he writes about what's going on in Esther in such a beautiful way that we, just, we can't help but, but look to it. Philippians chapter 2. The author, his name's Paul, says this. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature or likeness or kindness or uh, kind of a servant and being made in human likeness or form And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. You see, this this little blurb right here, written from this pastor of this church, is a reminder that when everything feels so messy and so broken and so dark, God shows up. In the darkest hour, God walks away from the safety and comfort of being separate from us. And he takes off his heavenly robes. And he clothes himself in humanity. And he walks into the broken, messy story. You see, accounts like Esther, we're going to be in Esther for a few weeks, are so powerful because we get such a clear view of reality of the way things are. And when we get that view, when we slow down long enough to get that perspective and see the way humanity really is, the way I really am, the way you really are, the way our city really is, our society, our world, we're left with these questions like, well, well, what will we do about it? The reality is, God has been doing something about it for a long time. He has seen this problem, he has named this problem, and he's responded to this problem. We call it the incarnation or the in-fleshness of God. He shows up. He arrives in the middle of the mess to make the mess better. See, I I don't know your story. I don't know the particulars of your brokenness, but I can say this with no hesitation whatsoever. I know you are a broken, sinful human. I know you're a mess. I know there are things about you that you wish no one else would know. I know you've made decisions that you regret. I know that people have harmed you and abused you. And our God, who also knows that about you, has chosen not to disown you or hurt you further or punish you or obliterate you. He's chosen to love you. He's chosen to walk into this mess For the sake of loving you. That's the story of the scriptures. That's the story of Esther when things are so dark. What's coming is a king. Very different than King Xerxes. Who will right the wrongs that we've created. So as we lean into this text, as we lean into Esther, here's the thing. If you come back and want to be a part of this journey with us, You've got to be prepared. It's not going to be easy. It's a mirror looking into our own broken stories. But it's not a mirror without hope. And at the center of this story is hope. So here's what I'd like you to think on this week. I would like you to reflect on your own broken story. And much like the way this story begins, and there isn't resolution, and there isn't hope on the horizon yet, without dangerously moving into things like depression, I'd like you to get a good perspective on who you are and what your story is. I'd like you to put words to your own darkness, to your own sin story. I've been saying that that you are more sinful than you think you are. And that is absolutely true. And that we've got work to discover how broken we actually are. But here's the opposite side of that statement. Yes, you are more sinful than you think you are. But God loves you more than you think he does. That's what's coming through the story. The future is coming in Esther. We're living it right now. So we live on both sides. Being keenly aware of how messy things are. And looking for hope that only God provides. Let's pray together and we're going to move on. Jesus, this morning... It's quite humbling to, to take a look at other people's mess, to name it. And for that to cause us to have to look at our own, our own broken, messy story. So God, this morning, I pray for huge amounts of grace, huge amounts of patience. And where our self-will ends on this, God, I pray that your spirit would motivate us to look honestly at who we are and what we are, what our society is what our friendships are, what our families are, and take an inventory to honestly be able to name. God, we are a mess, and we need your help. And God, through that, I pray that again, where our self-will ends, that your spirit would take up the task of reminding us how much you love us, that this is the kind of story that you're a master of rewriting. So please, God, rewrite these stories. I love you. I pray in your name.